Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. First, a warning. None of the stories in the series is pleasant, but this one includes child victims. If that's too much for you, we respect your limits. When parents heard that something awful had happened at the city school, they rushed to the scene, desperate to find their children. They arrived to face unfathomable devastation. Children's moans filled the air. Some wandered, dazed, covered in blood, clearly in shock. Dead bodies were strewn about. Parents dropped to their knees and prayed. The wails of mothers carried all across town. Someone had attacked the school. This is a scene we Americans know all too well, unfortunately. But this one was different. And I remember all the little kids that were killed. She talks about seeing body parts hanging from the telephone lines and uh, dead children and, and their mothers kneeling over and crying. Hysterical parents, some of whom had lost more than one child, clutching the bodies of their children. For starters, the weapon of choice wasn't a gun. Rather, this killer used explosives. And the country was by no means numb to this type of violence, as this attack was in 1927 and marked the first time in American history that a school had been the target of a massacre. The attacker has long been forgotten by most, but the attack itself to this day remains the deadliest school attack in our country's history. On May 18, 1927, children awoke in the small Michigan town of Bath extra excited for the day. That's because it was the last day of school before summer break, and even 90-plus years ago, kids got pretty geeked for summer. Bath was near Lansing, the state's capital, and was largely rural. Lots of farmers lived in the area, and lots of kids, too, many of whom worked the farms with their parents. And while a lot of those kids were expected to grow up and take over the farm, in America in the 1920s, a bigger emphasis was being placed on education. Urban kids didn't have much trouble finding decent schools, but rural kids were another matter. Homesteads sprawled over acres, so the tendency was to have a smattering of schoolhouses throughout an area. These would be those one-room numbers you've heard about, maybe toured now and then. The idea was to have a school close enough to every kid in town so that no one was walking much more than a mile to get there. I mean, it wasn't an ideal setup, especially because you would have just one teacher for all the grades and all the subjects. A single teacher in a rural school just couldn't hold a candle to multiple grade-specific teachers with specialties. Testing consistently showed that students living in cities with their bigger, better-funded schools were learning more. So an idea grabbed hold of the nation. Why don't we make schools in farm towns just as fancy as the schools in the cities? 
the town had relatively recently built a fancy new, what they call consolidated school. This is Harold Schechter, author of the book Maniac. There was a movement in many rural communities throughout the country back then to replace the various one-room schoolhouses that were scattered throughout these towns with a big, one big new modern consolidated school. The Bath Consolidated School, built in 1922, was state-of-the-art, with two wings to house all of the community school children. Multiple teachers were hired to teach the various grades and various subjects. And no longer would a teenager be sitting in the classroom alongside his first grader sibling. Instead, he'd be challenged by kids his own age and by teachers whose attention could be more focused. One drawback to this new setup was proximity. A centralized school couldn't be situated less than a mile from every kid in town, after all. So newly hired school officials unveiled a busing system. Every morning, kids would be picked up from home and hauled to the school and then brought back at day's end. All of this progress, of course, cost money. To raise that money, property taxes were increased. This surely will come as a shocker today, but not everyone was thrilled about having new taxes levied. I mean, what if you lived in Bath and didn't have kids? Why were you being forced to pay a levy so that some snot-nosed punk down the street got to have a fancy education? Well, at least some people saw it that way. The property tax hike was contentious in Bath, and one of the loudest critics was a man whose dissent would ultimately prove deadly. His name was Andrew Kehoe. We know he came from a large immigrant family. His grandfather had come here from Ireland. His father was a successful farmer. Andrew had been born in Tecumseh, Michigan, to parents Philip and Mary, who married in 1864. It was his father's second marriage. His first wife died three years earlier, leaving him with two daughters. Over their 26-year marriage, Mary gave birth to nine children, six girls and three boys. The oldest son was Andrew, born February 1st, 1872. His father, Philip, who had immigrated from Ireland with his father at about age eight, was considered the epitome of the immigrant success story, praised as a valuable citizen who served as drain commissioner of his hometown. He was also a devout Catholic, as evidenced by the fact that two of his eight daughters became nuns. But there must have been some progressive leanings in the household, too, because one of Andrew's sisters actually graduated the Detroit College of Law, became one of the only 200 female lawyers in the entire country, and was a founding member of the Women Lawyers Association of Michigan. Andrew grew up a bright boy. Kehoe was reputed, well, he apparently did have this mechanical and electrical bent. And he did study electrical engineering and he worked as a lineman stringing wire for a period of time. The turn of the 20th century was a huge time for innovation, after all. Unveiled in this era were the diesel engine, the escalator, the vacuum cleaner, air conditioning. Andrew Kehoe wasn't on par with the geniuses who created those kinds of things, but like a lot of little boys in the era, he was clearly fascinated by engineering and was, by all accounts, a talented tinkerer. He would fashion gadgets that made life on the farm a tad bit easier. One neighbor described the family farm as one big laboratory for Andrew, who excelled in physics class. He also might have been a bit of a loner, one neighbor, named F.W. Yates, 
described Andrew as distant and cold and said he seemed lost in his thoughts a good bit. At least that's what he would later say after the horrible story unfolded. Schechter wonders if memories like these are a bit of revisionist history. The thing about writing about notorious murderers from our past is that until they become notorious murderers, no particular attention is paid to them. In fact, it doesn't seem Andrew was a total recluse, Schechter said. Newspaper tidbits suggest that Andrew took part in community events as a teenager. He even performed comical sketches from time to time. In 1890, Andrew's mother, Mary, died at the age of 55 after a long illness. Andrew turned 18 that year. Afterward, he stayed on the farm working alongside his father until 1898, which is when Father Philip married a third time to a woman named Frances, age 40 to his 65. What Andrew did over the next few years isn't totally clear, according to Schechter's book, though he did find Andrew listed as a boarder in Ann Arbor with the supposed occupation of dairyman in the year 1900. He supposedly got a degree from an agricultural college at some point. I say supposedly because we've never seen a degree. And then he bounced around the Midwest stringing electrical wire. By 1910, when Andrew was nearing 40, he was back at his father's farm, per census data. He lived with his dad, stepmother, and far younger half-sister, Irene, who'd been born in 1902. In 1911, tragedy struck the Kehoe farm. Back then, they were selling these gasoline stoves, which were supposed to be the -the state-of-the-art kitchen appliances. There would be a stove, and, and above the stove, a tank of gasoline, basically, with feeding it. You know, these were being marketed as this great convenience for housewives who didn't have to get up early in the morning and start a wood fire so they could make their husbands breakfast before the men went out to work in the fields. But there was a problem with this particular invention. If you read the papers at the time, there were all these terrible accidents. Turns out putting a gas tank above an open flame is a bit risky. There were dozens of explosions, many of them fatal. So no one was suspicious when Frances Kehoe put a match to her stove and it responded by exploding. The incident sounds horrific. Andrew supposedly ran to the kitchen to see what his stepmother was screaming about. Whether he acted quickly or stood to watch her burn is up for debate. What is known, though, is that the poor woman's nine-year-old daughter, Irene, saw her mother on fire and helped douse the flames. What's worse is that Frances didn't die right away. She lingered in agony for hours. The death was ruled accidental, which might be true. When it happened, no one questioned that ruling because explosions like that happened all the time. But it was well known that Andrew Kehoe didn't like his stepmother, And so, years later, after the whole world knew the evil of which he was capable, some began to wonder, was his stepmother actually his first kill? Less than a year after his stepmother's death in 1911, Andrew Kehoe finally married. I say finally because it wasn't terribly common back then to wait until age 40 to get hitched. His bride was even more an anomaly because she was 37 and it was her first marriage. 
I mean, in this era, a woman not married by 30 was considered quite the old maid. It seemed to be an ideal coupling, though. Ellen Agnes Price, known as Nellie, was also Irish Catholic. Her uncle had been a successful businessman and farmer, and he'd also served as a Lansing city councilman, chief of police, and superintendent of public works. Nellie's father worked on her uncle's farm in Bath. Her mother died when she was young, which gave her something in common with her new husband. It also seemed to account for her later-in-life marriage, as she basically took on the role of woman of the house and put her siblings before herself. It's unclear where Andrew and Nellie met. Some rumors place their meet-cute at the Michigan State Agricultural College in East Lansing, but Schechter is dubious. The college, which later became Michigan State University, had no records of either attending there. And I noticed that on the 1910 U.S. Census, Andrew's parents reported that they had attended school, but Andrew didn't. This is relevant because Andrew liked to tell people haughtily that he was a college graduate when it doesn't look like he really was. Anyway, when Nellie and Andrew first married, they lived and worked on the 40-acre Kehoe Farm in Tecumseh, Michigan, which is about 30 miles southwest of Ann Arbor. A few years into the marriage, Nellie's rich uncle died, leaving behind an 80-acre farm in Bath, Michigan. The property was ideal, Andrew thought. It featured a three-story home, a big barn, and a chicken coop. Nellie didn't inherit the land outright. Rather, it was part of her uncle's estate, which was managed by his widow, brother, and family attorney. They were happy to sell the property to family, but they weren't going to just give it away. The farm was valued at $12,000, which is about 250 grand today. Andrew paid half of the market value up front. The remaining $6,000 he would pay in monthly installments of 360 bucks, a mortgage, but instead of paying a bank, he was paying Nellie's relatives. This wasn't a paltry mortgage, mind you. It translates to about $7,500 in today's money, but it was the 1910s and the economy was great. World War I had been a godsend for American farmers. During the Great War, they had really flourished. You know, they were exporting all of these uh, crops and wheat and so on to Europe, where the devastations of the war made it impossible for European farmers to grow this stuff. The couple figured they'd pay off the mortgage in no time. Meanwhile, they planted roots and bath and made a good impression on their neighbors. Nellie at times hosted the ladies' Friday afternoon club at the farm and arranged card games with other couples. Andrew, with his flair for mechanics, was also a hit with his neighbors. Neighbors testified that he was always willing to come and help somebody if there was a particular piece of equipment or some appliance that needed repair. But he did have an aggressive side, sometimes chewing out his guests for perceived slights. One neighbor reported that Andrew had beaten one of his horses to death, and he told another neighbor that he'd shot her dog for burying a bone on his property. These issues, in hindsight, could have been red flags, but in the moment, neighbors just thought of Andrew as a quirky grump. I mean, this was a guy who farmed not in dirty overalls like everyone else, but in business suits. Schechter wrote, quote, He would hurry home to wash up if his hands got too greasy and was known to change his shirt in the middle of the day 
if he noticed a stain or smudge of dirt, end quote. He was eccentric, no question, but still, he wasn't a recluse. Not only did he and Nellie host events at their home, but Andrew served on the board of directors for a township branch of a National Farm Bureau. So when Andrew began to complain about a controversial issue in Bath, he expected people to listen. That issue was the new consolidated school. Andrew did not want it built. The people of Bath had voted to construct one over Kehoe's objections because it meant an increase in his property tax and he had no children. Andrew had previously shown distaste for underwriting community construction projects. Back in Tecumseh, shortly after his marriage, he had refused to chip in for the local church to erect a new building. It caused such tension that he quit going to church altogether. In Bath, the issue was twofold. First, he didn't see why he should pay more in taxes when, as a childless man, he would see no benefit from a fancy new school. And second, remember how the farming economy was doing so well during World War I? So a lot of American farmers purchased new equipment and bought more land and took out bank loans to expand their businesses. And then when the war was over, that market totally disappeared because European farmers can now grow their own crops. From a documentary about the era, Farm income went from $14.5 billion in 1919 to $8.1 billion in 1921. Usually, when we think of the 1920s, we think Roaring Twenties, Flappers, the excesses of the Jazz Age. All of that was going on but not for farmers. So for a lot of American farmers found themselves years before the, you know, the Great Depression that started in 29, in these dire financial straits, and Kehoe was one of them. Andrew and Nellie had stopped paying the $360 a month mortgage they'd arranged with Nellie's relatives. Her family was, of course, understanding, so no one was threatening foreclosure or anything, but they did keep pressure on the couple to catch their payments up. This made Andrew hate the new fancy school even more. When the school was first built in 1922, residents were charged just over $12 per $1,000 valuation, meaning a home worth $10,000 had to pay $120 per year for the school. In 1926, the tax rate went up to nearly $20 per thousand, which meant that Andrew's bill went from about 122 bucks to 200 a year between 1922 and 1926. He did everything he could to stop this. For example, he tried to get his property value reduced so he could pay less. When that didn't work, he decided to run for a seat on the school board, which he won in 1924. It was a three-year post, and at the board's first meeting, his peers chose him to be treasurer. People figured that role suited him because he was so miserly. He managed some early wins on the school board. He successfully lobbied to have the school janitor's pay cut by $60 and to have contracts filled via competitive bidding rather than nepotism. But he also lost plenty of battles, too often being the sole dissenting vote on an issue. He was considered difficult and had an especially contentious relationship with the school superintendent, Emery Hike, sometimes pronounced Hoik. Hike was a lifelong Michigan resident about 20 years younger than Andrew. 
He also had graduated from Michigan State Agricultural College, the school Andrew claims to have attended, but probably didn't. He was a bright, enthusiastic young man who accepted the superintendent job just as he graduated in 1922 at age 27. It paid the equivalent of about $36,000 a year in today's money. By all accounts, Hike excelled at the job. He managed to meet all the standards required to get the school officially accredited, which was no easy feat for a new school with an inexperienced leader. He was so respected that after his first year in Bath, the school board voted to extend his contract and give him a 10% raise annually. That was the year before Andrew Kehoe was elected. Andrew surely would not have approved of that raise. And Kehoe, who had himself again appointed to the school board as treasurer, saw Hoyk as his main rival. The two men were inherently at odds. Kehoe was very obsessed, for example, again, with keeping the expenditures of the school under tight control because he was worried about his taxes. Uh, and he partly blamed Hoyt because, you know, Hoyt was interested in making the school the best school in the state and was investing all this money and bringing in good teachers and bringing in good school equipment and so on and so forth. It didn't help that Hike routinely attended the school board meetings, which Andrew felt was invasive. He thought the proximity was swaying other board members to go along with the superintendent's constant expenditure requests. He tried to get Hike banned from the meetings, but he was overruled. Everyone in town knew there was no love lost between Andrew Kehoe and Emery Hike, but they never expected the rivalry to turn deadly. In 1925, the elected clerk of Bath Township suddenly died, and Andrew Kehoe was asked to fill out the rest of her term. He was thrilled. He was the kind of guy who liked to be in power, who saw himself as superior to others. The term was set to expire the next year, so Kehoe lobbied to keep it. But people weren't as thrilled with his performance as he was. The next spring, he lost the race and took it hard. About the same time, he got more power from the school board. Andrew had managed to rid the consolidated school of a pesky bee infestation, so the impressed board voted to give him access to the school as a sort of backup handyman. This turned out to be a horrifying mistake. It's tough to say exactly when Andrew Kehoe decided to blow up the school but we know that he started stockpiling explosives in 1925. At the time, farmers could get a product from the U.S. government called Pyrotol. Pyrotol was a kind of low-grade TNT that the government had made out of World War I surplus explosives and was selling to farmers to help them clear their fields of boulders and tree stumps. As a 1924 New York Times story read, quote, Explosives enough to fill a freight train 40 miles long are to be given away by the government to farmers for clearing land and to state governments for highway construction, end quote. Pyrotol was like dynamite, but about one-third the price. The government charged $7.90 per 100 pounds of pyrotol, which was enough to blast a solid acre of tree stumps from a field. 
farmers were eligible to buy up to 1,000 pounds. In the fall of 1925, Andrew Kehoe bought 500 pounds. We know this because a neighbor drove with him to pick it up and helped him unload the crates into Kehoe's barn. The neighbor assumed Andrew was using it like all his other neighbors were, to clear off chunks of his land for the harvest season. He was wrong. People in hindsight realized there were warnings. Among the biggest was that Andrew had stopped working on his farm, letting his fields overgrow. Some people also noticed that he was going in and out of the school building at odd hours, mostly at night, when no one else was there. Still, they had no reason to be suspicious at the time. They knew Andrew was struggling financially, and on top of that, his wife Nellie had fallen ill. Tuberculosis was suspected. She was in and out of the hospital, which was just as much a financial burden then as it is today. Andrew's money woes kept compounding. If you're feeling any sympathy toward his plight, however, listen to this. A teacher called Andrew about a week before the last day of school, asking if she could bring school kids to Andrew's farm the next day, as in the day after the last day of school. That would have been a Thursday. Andrew said, sure thing, but you don't want to wait until Thursday. How about you bring the kids Tuesday instead? It was Wednesday when Andrew attacked the children. Here's what happened. Kehoe had acquired hundreds of pounds of this explosive. He also supplemented it with some dynamite, which was freely available at different hardware stores. And he spent several weeks in the spring of uh, 1927 sneaking into the school at night and rigging the basement with, again, hundreds of pounds of explosives. Kehoe had a a mechanical bent, and he fashioned uh, a timer and set the timer to go off on May 18th, which was the last day of school, when he felt most of the children in the community would be in attendance. This part of Schechter's book is hard to read. It's easy for us to forget the humanity of people who lived a hundred years ago, and we see them more as movie characters than real flesh and bone. But on May 18th, Parents just like yours, or just like you, packed lunches for their precocious kids and hugged them as they sent them off to school. The children filed into the building, plopping down into the chairs at their little wooden desks. Some had finals to take. Others were really done with their studies, but that last day was perfunctory, a day where they would cut up with friends that they might not see again until summer's end. Andrew Kehoe had scheduled the bombs to explode at 8.45 a.m. On this date in 1927, an explosion injured more than 50 people and killed 45. 38 of them were children. The school rose about four feet in the air and fell down. The roof collapsed from the second floor onto the first floor. The worst act of school violence in American history happened right here in mid-Michigan. Disgruntled school board member Andrew Kehoe blew up the school with dynamite. He was angry about having to pay higher taxes for the newer consolidated schools that replaced the one-room schoolhouse. 36 children died immediately, as did two teachers. One teacher was found with a child under each of her arms. She'd been in the middle of reading time when the bombs went off. Unbelievably... It could have been worse. 
most of the explosives did not go off. If they had, Kehoe would have essentially annihilated an entire generation of the town's children. Andrew Kehoe had set out to absolutely demolish the entire school, but only a portion of his explosives properly detonated. Still, the devastation was like nothing anyone had seen outside of wartime. Now, across town, smoke wafted from Andrew Kehoe's farm, which was engulfed in flames. No one yet suspected that he'd had anything to do with the school explosion. In fact, the first thought was that it must have been a gas leak. So some of his neighbors rushed over to try to help, screaming for Andrew or Nellie to answer so they could be located and pulled from the flames. No one replied. The neighbors entered the house. And they were looking around. They started moving out some furniture. This is author Arnie Bernstein, who wrote Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing. And then they saw dynamite planted in the house. And they got out very quickly. Soon, the house exploded. Then the barn. People had no clue what was going on. It seemed like the end of the world. Kehoe wasn't in the burning house. Rather, someone spotted him driving wild-eyed to the school. He pulled up in his pickup truck, which he had loaded with nails to serve as shrapnel, and then he motioned for Superintendent Emery Hike to come talk. This is Irene Dunham, who was featured earlier this year in a news program because, at 113 years old, she was the oldest person alive in Michigan, and she also survived the Bath Massacre back when she was a little girl named Irene Babcock. That was terrible. Through her son, Bruce, Irene told the TV reporter about how she had awoken May 18th with a sore throat, so her mom had her stay home from school. When they heard the earth-rattling explosion, her mother ordered Irene into the car, and they raced to the school. When they arrived, they saw body parts dangling from trees overhead. And just as he got to the car, well, he, this guy turned the switch on and blew the poor hike. And, and of course, the car and everything and part of the car was on the wire above, part of him with it. It was hard to have to look at. Kehoe and Hike blew up together. The shrapnel from the vehicle killed another child who'd been unscathed in the original explosion plus two more adults who just happened to be nearby. It was just a, a hellish, heartbreaking scene because, you know, you had, first of all, the kids who were killed immediately, but then there were a lot of kids who were buried under all this rubble, who were shouting piteously for help. You had all these uh, parents, you know, frantically with their bare hands, struggling to uh, uncover all this concrete and steel and stone to reach their kids. As the parents' bare hands got raw and bloodied, they uncovered body after body. The dead ones were carried to this nearby hill. After a while, there were 38 dead bodies just arranged on the hill and hysterical parents, some of whom had lost more than one child, clutching the bodies of their children. No one in Bath was removed from the devastation. The school had served more than 200 students, so more than 10% of the school body died that day. Everyone had a friend or a neighbor or a sibling. In one case, all three children in a single family were killed. Fifty more people were injured that day. Some of those injuries plagued the survivors for the rest of their lives. 
One little girl was so badly hurt that she was hospitalized for three months. She never went home. She died during a surgery meant to remove a fragment of the explosion that had lodged in her body. People searching Kehoe's farm the day after the devastation finally found the body of his wife. She'd been burned so badly that they had walked past her for hours, thinking she was just more debris. After an examination, they realized that Kehoe had bashed her skull in, killing her. Then he had loaded her body unceremoniously onto a hog cart and left her there to burn. It was this apocalyptic act. You know, he was going to end not only his own life, but as much of the world as he could. Not only did he murder his wife and set his land on fire, but he used barbed wire to tie his horse's legs together so they couldn't escape the burning barn. He even stripped bark from young trees growing on the property to make sure they died too. He'd also left behind a message. It was found wired to a fence hugging his property. It was in stenciled letters, as in he had to sit down and design this sign with these words. It read, criminals are made, not born. Nurture versus nature had been a hot topic around America at the time, and it seemed Kehoe wanted to take a side. Apparently he meant for that to be the legacy he left behind. Proof that a good man could be driven to do terrible things if you push him around hard enough. But the way I read it is that it was also this last very sadistic taunt at his townspeople. You know, as if he was saying, you made me do this. I wasn't born this way. It's all your fault. It was one final twist of the knife to the people left behind to bury their children. At the time of the explosion, the story was on front pages nationwide. But it didn't stay there long. First, there was no trial to follow. The town held an inquest, the testimony of which Schechter used as the basis for his book, but that was perfunctory, and the person at fault had blown himself up, so follow-up stories weren't in demand. Secondly, just days after the explosion, America's attention was diverted by more upbeat news. Charles Lindbergh had flown the spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic Ocean. People loved reading about him. Reading about dozens of dead children? Not so much. And Schechter thinks there's a third reason this case was so quickly forgotten. Every period in history is afflicted with its own anxieties and concerns. Stories about the prevailing obsessions of the day are the ones that are covered relentlessly. In the 1950s, had black widows. The 1980s, serial killers. Today, mass murderers are absolutely an American anxiety. But that wasn't the case in the 1920s. In that era, people were consumed by crimes tied to superior rich kids and free-thinking women. What Andrew Kehoe had done was so unheard of, so freakish, that it just didn't stick. People couldn't wrap their heads around what he had done, so they didn't worry that somebody else might follow suit. And so they opted to sweep him up and toss him into the dustbin of forgotten history where, arguably, he belongs, though not his victims. In the end, though, Andrew Kehoe didn't win. The residents of Bath refused to let him destroy their town. Heartbroken and traumatized, 
They raised money to rebuild the school, thanks in large part to a personal donation from U.S. Senator James Cousins. The new school, renamed after Cousins, was dedicated in 1928, where it stood for nearly 50 years before being demolished. Today, that land is home to a small park dedicated to the bombing victims. And at the heart of the park, 99 years after it was built, still stands the original cupola of the school that a madman once so desperately tried to destroy. To research this story, which I'd never heard about, despite having lived in Michigan for a decade, I read Harold Schechter's Maniac. I also did some genealogy and census research, plus read contemporary news accounts and more recent anniversary stories. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 